Chapter Three of Inside the Lines by Earl Biggers and Robert Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Billy Capper at Play. The night of July twenty sixth. The scene is the table cluttered sidewalk before the Cafe Pythias, where the Cours Saint Louis flings its night tide of idlers into the broad stream of the Canabere, Marseilles Broadway the white street of the great Provencal port. Here at the crossing of these two streets summer nights are incidents to stick in the traveller's mind long after he sees the grey walls of the Chateau d'If fade below the steamer's rail. The flower-girls in their little pulpits, pressing dewy violets and fragrant clusters of rosebuds upon the strollers with persuasive eloquence the mystical eyes of hooded moors who see everything as they pass, yet seem to see so little. Jostling Greeks, Levantines, burnoosed Jews from Algiers, and red-trousered Senegalese, all the colour from the hot lands of the Mediterranean is there. But on the night of July 26th, the old spirit of indolence, of pleasure-seeking, flirtation, intriguing, which was wont to make this heart of arc-light life in Marseilles pulse languorously, was gone. Instead, an electric tenseness was abroad, pervading, infectious. About each sidewalk table heads were clustered close in conference, and eloquent hands aided explosive argument. Around the news-kiosk at the Café Pythias corner a constant stream eddied, men snatched papers from the pile spread them before their faces and blundered into their fellow pedestrians as they walked buried in the inky columns now and again half-naked urchins came charging down the canabere waving shin-plaster extras above their heads l'almain sarm la guerre vient up from the quay marched a dozen sailors from a torpedo-boat, arms linked so they almost spanned the canabere. Their red-tasseled caps were pushed back at cocky angles on their black heads, and as they marched they shouted in time, Ah, Berlin! Who? Who? The black shadow of war, the first hallucinations of the great madness, gripped Marseilles. For Captain Woodhouse, just in from Berlin that evening, all this swirling excitement had but an incidental interest. He sat alone by one of the little iron tables before the Café Pythias, sipping his bulk, and from time to time his eyes carelessly followed the eddying of the swarm about the news-kiosk. Always his attention would come back, however, to centre on the thin shoulders of a man sitting fifteen or twenty feet away with a wine-cooler by his side. He could not see the face of the wine-drinker, he did not want to. All he cared to do was to keep those thin shoulders always in sight. Each time the solicitous waiter renewed the bottle in the wine-cooler, Captain Woodhouse nodded grimly, as a doctor might when he recognized the symptoms of advancing fever in a patient. So for two days from Berlin across to Paris, and now on this third day here in the Mediterranean port, Woodhouse had kept ever in sight those thin shoulders and that trembling hand beyond the constantly crooking elbow. Not a pleasant task. He had come to loathe and abominate the very wrinkles in the back of that shiny coat. But a very necessary duty it was for Captain Woodhouse to shadow Mr. Billy Capper until the right moment should arrive. 
They had come down on the same express together from Paris. Woodhouse had observed Capper when he checked his baggage, a single shoddy handbag for La Vendée, the French line-ship sailing with the dawn next morning for Alexandria and Port Said via Malta. Capper had squared his account at the Hotel Ali de Mayon, for the most part a bill for absinthe fraps, after dinner that night, and was now enjoying the night life of Marseilles in anticipation, evidently, of carrying direct to the steamer with him, as his farewell from France, all of the bottled laughter of her peasant girls he could accommodate. The harsh memories of how he had been forced to drink the bitter lees of poverty during the lean months rode Billy Capper hard, and this night he wanted to fill all the starved chambers of his soul with the robust music of the grape. So he drank with a purpose, and purposefully. That he drank alone was a matter of choice with Capper. He could have had a pair of dark eyes to glint over a goblet into his had he wished. Indeed, opportunities almost amounted to embarrassment. But to all advances from the fair, Billy Capper returned merely an impolite leer. He knew from before time that he was his one best companion when the wine began to warm him. So he squared himself to his pleasure with an abandoned rakishness expressed in the set of his thin shoulders and the forward droop of his head. Woodhouse, who watched, noted only one peculiarity in Capper's conduct. The drinker nursed his stick, a plain crook-handled malacca, with a tenderness almost maternal. It never left his hands. Once, when Capper dropped it, and the waiter made to prop the stick against a nearby chair, the little spy leaped to his feet and snatched the cane away with a growl. Thereafter he propped his chin on the handle, only removing this guard when he had to tip his head back for another draught of champagne. Eleven o'clock came. Capper rose from the table and looked owlishly about him. Woodhouse quickly turned his back to the man, and was absorbed in the passing strollers. When he looked back again, Capper was slowly and a little unsteadily making his way around the corner into the canabiere. Woodhouse followed, sauntering. Capper began a dilatory exploration of the various cafés along the white street. His general course was toward the city's slums about the quay. Woodhouse, dawdling about tree-boxes and dodging into shadows by black doorways, found his quarry easy to trail, and he knew that each of Capper's sojourns in an oasis put a period to the length of the pursuit. The time for him to act drew appreciably nearer with every tipping of that restless elbow. Midnight found them down in the reek and welter of the dives and sailors' frolic grounds. Now the trailer found his task more difficult, inasmuch as not only his quarry, but he himself, was marked by the wolves. Dances in smoke-wreathed rooms slackened when Capper lurched in, found a seat, and ordered a drink. Women with cheeks carmined like poppies wanted to make predatory love to him. Dock-rats drew aside and consulted in whispers. When Capper retreated from an evil dive on the very edge of the quay, Woodhouse, waiting by the doors, saw that he was not the only shadower. Close against the dead walls, flanking the narrow pavement, a slinking figure twisted and writhed after the drunkard, now spread eagling all over the street. Woodhouse quickened his pace on the opposite sidewalk. 
The street was one lined with warehouses, their closely shuttered windows the only eyes. Capper dropped his stick, laboriously halted, and started to go back for it. That instant the shadow against the walls detached itself and darted for the victim. Woodhouse leaped to the cobbles and gained Capper's side just as he dropped like a sack of rags under a blow from the dock rat's fist. "'Son of a pig! This is my meat! You clear out!' The humped-backed beetle of a man straddling the sprawling capper whipped a knife from his girdle and faced Woodhouse. Quicker than light, the captain's right arm shot out. A thud, as of a maul on an empty wine-butt, and the Apache turned a half-somersault, striking the cobbles with the back of his head. Woodhouse stooped, lifted the limp capper from the street-stones, and staggered with him to the lighted avenue of the Canabier, a block away. He hailed a late cruising carriage, propped Capper in the seat, and took his place beside him. "'To la Vendée, quai de la Fraternité,' Woodhouse ordered. The driver, wise in the ways of the city, asked no questions, but clucked to his crow-bait. Woodhouse turned to make a quick examination of the unconscious man by his side. He feared a stab-wound. He found nothing but a nasty cut on the head, made by brass knuckles. With the wine helping, any sort of a blow would have put Capper out, he reflected. Woodhouse turned his back on the bundle of clothes and reached for the malacca stick. Even in his coma, its owner grasped it tenaciously at mid-length. Without trying to disengage the clasp, Woodhouse gripped the wood near the crook of the handle with his left hand, while with his right he applied torsion above. The crook turned on hidden threads and came off in his hand. An exploring forefinger in the exposed hollow end of the cane encountered a rolled wisp of paper. Woodhouse pocketed this, substituted in its place a thin clean sheet torn from a card-case memorandum, then screwed the crook on the stick down on the secret receptacle. By the light of a match he assured himself the paper he had taken from the cane was what he wanted. "'Larceny from the person. Guilty,' he murmured, with a wry smile of distaste. "'But assault? Unpremeditated.' The conveyance trundled down a long spit of stone and stopped by the side of a black hull, spotted with round eyes of light. The driver, scenting a tip, helped Woodhouse lift Capper to the ground and prop him against a bulkhead. A boatswain, summoned from La Vendée by the cabby's shrill whistle, heard Woodhouse's explanation with sympathy. "'Occasionally, yes, monsieur. The passengers from Marseilles have these regrets at parting,' he gravely commented, accepting the ticket Woodhouse had rummaged from the unconscious man's wallet and a crinkled note from Woodhouse's. Up the gangplank, feet first, went the new agent of the Wilhelmstrasse. The one who called himself Captain in His Majesty's Signal Service returned to his hotel. At dawn, La Vendée cleared the harbour for Alexandria via Malta, bearing a very sick Billy Capper to his destiny. Five hours later, the castle liner, Castle Clare, for the Cape via Alexandria and Suez direct, sailed out of the old port, among her passengers, a Captain Woodhouse. End of chapter 3